welcome to the paper pencil podcast i am swarnavo the host of this podcast and i am super happy to have you back now if you like this episode do consider subscribing to this podcast also it will really help if you spread the word about this show as well tell your friends about it put it up on your stories that will really 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 help now you can also show your support and also show your appreciation towards this podcast we by buying me a coffee for as low as 3 dollars or around 220 rupees today using the link in the show notes below it's the last link on the list thanks a ton for that with that let's begin with this episode now personally the one thing that i find more complicated to understand apart from drawing human hands is law especially when it comes to art You see when you're beginning as an artist probably laws around art is not the first thing you think about because there are so many more things to be done like learning about light and shadows or color theory drawing hands and more but in my journey as i grew as a professional artist the need to understand the laws around this business became all the more important uh, to be specific again it was 2019 uh, i was a part of bangalore comic con and that's when i remember understanding or even knowing about the fact that you know what you can't just go and let's say uh, take something like a spider man and make a poster out of it and start selling it under your name or let's say take a popular sitcom like let's say friends or a big bang theory and make some merchandise on your own and start selling now that's not correct because again some other entities let's say own the ip uh, to these particular things that i just mentioned now After my conversation with Pranita on episode 31 of this podcast we got into talking about this point and she told me about this lady who happens to know quite a lot about the laws around art she even has a degree in everything now i'm talking about today's guest mekla dave who joins me from vienna she is an art lawyer and pursuing a phd at the intersection of art and law at the university of applied arts vienna She is also an ocean law and policy analyst at the TBA Academy which is an art organization based across Vienna, London, Venice and Madrid that works on ocean literacy and research through the lens of art. Now, that is a lot of stuff that I don't really understand to be honest. The only thing I picked up from her bio is that she loves art and she likes law as well. And that I guess can be a lethal combination. So to understand this whole thing better let's call in Mekla. Mekla, welcome to the Paper Pencil podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you for agreeing and uh, also on a side note thank you Pranita for connecting the two of us that was really really helpful and also I understand that there is a major thunderstorm in Vienna right now. So for the listeners you may hear some thunder and lightning in the background i hope it adds to the drama of this episode just like a play by shakespeare okay so mekla on that note uh, you know i i just spoke a lot i just spoke a lot and uh, again as i also mentioned during a previous call with you uh, that i don't understand law at all okay there's very few things that i really understand because for me uh, given my background for me law has always meant like that bollywood movie sort of a set where somebody goes wearing a black sort of a robe and says judge sahab or milord or whatever and starts doing a full on monologue which just inspires the heck out of the judge and uh, this guy goes and gives let's say whatever uh, takes a hammer of course and just like tuck something like that right that that's 
pretty much all i understand about loss so today i am here with you in front of you to really understand more about this stuff right now before we get into law and how you came across it or let's say art law for that matter which is again i didn't even know there was something like art law to be honest like a specific thing i always thought you probably go to any random lawyer and say sir i need your help on this okay ma'am i need your help on this so uh, let's let's begin uh, with your journey first where did this all begin you can take us through your uh, initial days in india of course and uh, maybe start right from the childhood or wherever i leave it up to you start yeah. you lord um thank you once again for having me on this podcast and i really appreciate your initiation of having me and like minded people to have these conversations uh with you that hopefully get cemented um you know in the near future and something arises out of it that is always what i'm looking for right. you know there's some sort of outcome from our conversations because you know um especially at a time like this when we have these crises like covid crises and also right. um you know other world crises we need to open up conversations and especially across like many diverse people and what they're doing absolutely you know um to put different kinds of storytelling and narratives in perspective so um my journey um i may not go too much into it because mm-hmm. i don't want to bore the uh, audiences or our listeners but um in a nutshell um i think uh, what i really desired when i was a child was uh, diversity mm-hmm. because i was moving uh, moving a lot uh, within india to different cities and towns and even villages because of my father's uh, peculiar job mm-hmm. and um in in the process of it all i began to meet different uh, you know people it was always a desire to talk to uh, children but also at the same time people of different age groups mm-hmm. but somehow that's not entirely possible in india i suppose um you know um there's always this sort of an authoritarian um uh, figure in family but also right. at the same time in the context of our society right. that um makes it difficult for especially women to mm-hmm. you know openly talk about um and so i think law was a way to study as many subjects as possible mm-hmm. on um you know um because law with uh, in india the way it's structured is it's a five year program where there's diverse subjects and the components or elements that i was really looking for um as i said was diversity so law i felt opened up that sort of um you know those sort of doors for me mm-hmm. of diversity of having different kinds of subjects and the other is that there was a sense of equality there was a sense of um justice that i was supposed to be you know also you know thinking about at a young time um in my life um that i was actually wanting to you know i think a lot of us have this aspiration to maybe not change our circumstances but at the same time have this sort of aspiration to maybe do something about our you know immediate society and environment right. to be honest i didn't have that much of it when i was growing up i was like any other 
kid a bit confused and lost. So I was trying to find myself vis-a-vis trying to find these components and um, also diversity around me in, in a nutshell and quite broadly. And in my third or fourth year of law school, I encountered this particular subject um, called art law and cultural policy, which was initiated by one of our faculty members. Mm-hmm. And I found that why, why haven't I been reading enough uh, already about art? why haven't I not been understanding about the history politics um, theory of art itself and then to understand how you know um, laws operate or regulate around art art as an object both and art as something that's more um, intangible and more present in our lives um, in, in, in way of political movements um, through activism and that's something that I can explain a bit later is something mm-hmm. also what I'm not interested in but invested in oh okay um, through my education <laughs> so um, these are the these are the things that I started to explore when I was in law school at first it was just about thinking of ownership of art works and that's something that a lot of artists encounter in general. Uh, whenever they make a art object, they um, have to think about if they own the artwork once they sell it right. to a collector, or maybe they are commissioned for um, some time um, um, to do some sort of objective work for a company or an organization or an institution. Um, In that context, you start to think about the, uh, you know, the artists start to think about who owns the artwork and how can I, how can we, you know, benefit from this. So that's something that I got interested in, ownership of artwork. And this became a lot more, um, a lot more interesting when, I started to read up about art history and theory and activism. When they get lumped up, artists begin to think about collaborative processes. Um, So in this context, it's not necessary that artists make an art object and it's not tangible product. And in this context, context, it's more about taking on the role of uh, you know, a role as um, activists and trying to change societies. Right. And so they use artistic methodologies as part of their work, but not necessarily, as I said, it's an end objective or product they want to achieve. It's just part of the process of collaborating with different kinds of communities and people so that there is an outcome in the context of a change that people can benefit from mutually. So um, in this context, there is no, there is no clear ownership of mm-hmm. any object uh, as as well. of, of an artwork. Exactly, the idea as well. So we have to think of artists in this context as well, because artists have this yearning for collaboration, 
Right. And not just, you know, um, making something in their, you know, like studio spaces and, and then selling it. Because there comes a point that there's a relationship between art and activism and also this desire to, to sort of change societies as well. And that is something that's all... Um, that all Sorry. makes sense because now um, see again I never thought of it this way and I'm very happy that I'm having this conversation with you Mekla and uh, I never thought of it that way for me uh, for most parts an artist for me was a person who would have his or her own studio they'd be there and they'd make stuff on canvas let's say and I'm talking about a very traditional artist in this case right and uh, by artist I'm talking about a painter let's say right and uh, this person would make uh, a painting on let's say a canvas or a piece of paper or whatever and then they'd probably look at a monetary uh, sort of a sale value to it and then probably that will be the end of the story but again I also realized that that's a very narrow-minded way of looking at art and the artist because you're absolutely correct and now when I look at and think of the greats that I have read about in this case all of them at one point of time they probably came out of the studios and tried to create a completely different uh, version of the society they were living in let's say Frida Kahlo if I think of her I think that's what she was doing in the most most part of the her life as well right it was not just that she was going and making paintings of her and let's say with her like her, her the famous unibrow for that matter but that's there was also a whole dialogue on society if i'm not wrong not dialogue but in this case it was more of a comment on society right yeah i think that's evergreen uh, it's always present in an artist's work I also feel that it starts maybe not necessarily as well from this desire of um, exploring one's own identity, but that has to be also situated in a very historical and political and societal mm -hmm. constructs. The times they live in. And, and yes, exactly, exactly. And if we look at India's history, but also at the same time, a global uh, South history, but also like in Western discourses and history um there's there's always been this relationship between art and activism um it's not just about you know um creating a product and you know selling it and that's it uh but it's just about situating uh, situating one's identity in the in these constructs as i mentioned and also at the same time, thinking of one's relationship with one another and how art can be actually a useful tool for transformation, right. you know, um, to, to, to think of uh, different kinds of narratives that is away from the dominant narrative that a lot of mm -hmm. countries mm -hmm. tend to right. construct. Right. Around or also us. the ruling, uh, if I talk about in today's times, I'd also think of the ruling government for that matter, right? Ru so, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah. not taking names or anything, but again, across the world, yeah. if you look at it, uh, something as simple as, let's say, a political cartoon would probably be a great example of this whole thing that it's not always about the artist in the studio trying to create 
let's say something that they like it's also about their whole comment on the society and the way things are going at that point of time that that's that's very yeah. interesting but you know what i would also before we go into this uh, mm-hmm. dimension because i know once we get in there it'll be very tough for us to come out of that conversation i just like to understand a few things about you as a person before we get into this whole thing okay now mm-hmm. my first thing is uh, why uh, so were you always interested in art as a kid is that something that was around you or you were influenced by because i'm trying to understand as a law student when you see art uh, law for that matter why does it influence you or attract you so much i'm trying to understand that i think it was because as i mentioned there was this always a desire to understand um myself and i was not really um satisfied uh, with a lot of um learnings that i had in school and at the same time i thought that school curriculums are really um narrow mm-hmm. the way they teach at schools is not something that you could you know think of in the, and you could try to situate yourself in those in those curriculums and understand yourself from them and by that i mean is that i'm sure there's a lot of students young students who want to do psychology or any other you know related subject that's off the grid yeah. and that's inaccessible um you know in our school curriculums and and i just also want to mention that not all of us in india get an education and it's a privileged um True. you know seat for us to actually get to school and to to actually have that sort of privilege is it's it's a great thing but also at the same time i'm i'm just making a small critique yeah. of school curriculums that they're not really inclusive of all of us um, you know like the way we want to learn from a young age is really limited and then it's like you put into several boxes that maybe you know you have to do sciences or humanities mm-hmm. or arts actually forget about it because uh, <laughs> that's that's something that's that's part of a traditional knowledge mm-hmm. you know you come from a particular culture within india and maybe your family is has singers dancers mm-hmm. uh, painters some sort of like a uh, person personality that can introduce you to those uh, you know um uh, um cultural traditional right. um arts and knowledge and from there you can you can you know start to take it on for example my grandfather is is a connoisseur of um classical music mm-hmm. um hindu classical music so um he had quite a lot of friends who were artists right. um in his time and you you hear of these stories and maybe you pick up one or two instruments of thinking maybe you know i can also enjoy that shared experience but at the same time you're trying to really carve an identity of yourself when you are growing up and and the first thing that you encounter is your school curriculum and your peers and you don't have that much of um experience and as well as um different kinds of lenses for you to you know um have this choice of seeing what you like what you don't like in a subject field mm-hmm. um or as well as even like in creative ways um to take on a particular art making course mm-hmm. it's usually somewhere else that you'll have to maybe take it on i 
I I'm I, I don't know. I mean, I've I've been to a lot of schools, and maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe someone else is right, but we don't have much of artisans' knowledge as well within India. I mean, we we know right. that there's a lot of artisans in India who have traditional knowledge of making you know specific art objects, right. but we don't know much about it. Um, and you probably read about it. Uh, I read about it like at least. thrice or four times a year at least and again i i there may be more times or at least i can think of right now three or four times a year you know these news articles would pop up out of nowhere where you know this particular art uh, style in this part of india is slowly dying because there is nobody else in the future generation to pick that up and probably this is the last yeah. person in the country in the world who is making this art and maybe after this person passes away it's gone yeah. it's out of the map and that's that's very true yeah. as well that's very true as well true and and uh, so have you always been see one thing that i i know i've been talking to you for the last what 15 20 minutes uh one thing i could pick up immediately is that you are a very reflective person you probably try to or think uh, you probably try, like to reflect on things mm-hmm. have you been like this like i'm just trying to imagine a mekla growing up in different parts of the country was she always this reflective or uh, did it come maybe because of some incident uh, experiences or was it always you this is who mekla has been throughout a very reflective uh, patient and thoughtful person i was always like this of course i'm flawed too <laughs> growing up i i of course um had a lot of experiences um you know i was i'm and i still am flawed in my own ways i want to you know uh, get that across as well um so of course you know i have been reflective of my own self as well as how i feel about or sense about my community my society mm-hmm. and that is irrespective of not just where uh, not just india but wherever i am right and uh, yes this this aspect has always been deeply part of me Uh, but i didn't have the you know uh, i would say um, i didn't have the Maybe. at the time when i was young uh, i'd say capacity to think in this mm-hmm. way the way i do um and maybe a language as well and not in the sense that um, a language like hindi or oh, english was a medium a yeah a medium to communicate that um, a medium of communication right. to actually you know um get across my um reflection <clears throat> with people and community um and i think like uh, art also gives that sort of um reflective uh, analytical um viewpoints or narratives of you know um how we feel and think with people and our community so um i wish i had this sort of discourse when i was growing up from from the art but um i didn't and that was when um this desire you know was was bubbling in me and i thought that law would be an avenue um to study it mm-hmm. um you know like to have to touch base upon different kinds of subjects um and to be able to make analysis from different perspectives would be would be really wow. nice wow so um, that's how i think kind of about... kid while growing up i'm pretty sure you're different from the lot am i correct on that like you are quite different from the lot given that, sure. <laughs> yeah g- given the fact that you would like 
again like okay you know what that, that brings me to my next question as well and before i come into that i i agree with what you said mekla that you know what uh, you the thing that you said that when you uh, now you wish that you probably had access to let's say information or these conversations when you were growing up and probably that would have helped you in a completely different way i absolutely agree with that because even today when i look at myself and i look at other people who are going through their journeys i realize i even i wish i would have access to let's say something like this where i would just have access to people who would tell me more about this uh, line of work let's call it i would have probably mm-hmm. decided differently and uh, again maybe yeah. know, my journey would have been different and uh, that's also one of the reasons why uh, you know i decided that this is a way i can do that by doing let's say this podcast because again the fact that i'm having this conversation with you especially you in today's episode is because i want to know more about that subject because again i do not have that history of let's say the whole uh, intersection as you would say an intersection of art and law for that matter so again it's it's very fruitful for me as well uh, but then again uh, i'm just parking that for a slightly later point but before that uh, after your school why did you take up law like was it uh, let's say like the other so many other indian kids where the families would be engineering doctor law or doctor engineering law so that that's always the top 3 right so was that yeah. the or was it like you came up and said hey hello i want to do this what was your story in that my parents um, were always very supportive of my decisions from a young age and i really give them so much credit for it especially my mother who's not mm-hmm. with us anymore um there was another experience that i went through that really opened up my eyes because she was a cancer patient and i don't want to really go into it but at the same time i want to really credit her because she actually wanted was wanting to push me towards the arts more oh. and i was not really confident because i'm not a hands on person um in the context of you know i i cannot necessarily make art um and that something as i said before was not naturally um you know accessible to me mm-hmm. um so i think that what i was wanting to do at the time and now that i'm finally you know um i'm finally doing this is that to think and sense with art is something that i i wanted to do at the time because i'm more of a writer i'm more of a you know um oh. i suppose i used to i used to um do a lot of poetry as well so um i'm i'm really like inclined to texts the most and mm-hmm. also i'm i'm really inclined to visuals right. which affect me a lot so aesthetics um visuals um texts affect me a lot to an extent um so these are the things that i knew about me but at the same time i decided that law would be and i don't regret um studying law for 5 years i think that it was a really holistic experience because i went to a law school that had just initiated um we were the first batch and we had a wonderful experience with each other we've we've really bridged um relations with each other that still remain strong to this day mm-hmm. um and from my batch and we've all we are all doing very diverse and different things and my faculty members at law school were also quite open minded and you know they they were younger as well so we had this um advantage where they were not really mired in traditional ways of right. teaching and lecturing but they were really open to different ideas and that's how 
um, I, while studying law, was at one point I was dissatisfied. But when I when I when this chord struck of art, law, and cultural policy, I began to think more about it. Um, once uh, I graduated, I took on a very um, traditional path, uh, which is litigation, mm-hmm. um, which is basically going to courts mm-hmm. um, in so India. Wait, wait, just let me ask you this. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but did you also yeah. have that one black robe that uh, lawyers generally have? Did you have that as well? Yeah. <laughs> what do you call yeah. that? What do you call that? I think they're just gowns and gowns. Okay. Yeah, they're just called gowns. <laughs> yeah, because because I, I remember when I was growing up. So one of my tuition classes used to be like this. This person used to stay near the 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 the. Uh, I think the court. Yeah, correct. It was near the court. Absolutely. And every day I would go to the tuitions. I would see these people walking around these gowns, right? And I don't know why. It, it felt very. I don't know. It felt very special. I think they they. It, it, just tell me that just a slight detour. Uh, Mm-hmm. Is it something that you guys like are very proud of, like a doctor's, let's say, the the white la- sort of a coat that they wear, right? So is that also something that you guys are, it fills you up with pride when you wear that and you walk around? Is that something that happens? Well, this is something that I differ from a lot of lawyers. And maybe mm-hmm. that's something that also sets me apart because I was never really dewy-eyed about the legal system or mm-hmm. other lawyers. I mean, I appreciate and tremendously um, respect the work that we do collectively mm-hmm. and, and, and individually. But I feel like it's a very colonial um, mm-hmm. attire that we've taken on, right? Because I don't think it's ours or it ever was ours to claim in the first place. And I, I have no idea why we do this. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's very peculiar because when you wear or adorn these gowns, you feel a sense of, um, I don't know. Um, power? Uh, power, exactly. Yeah. You feel a sense of power and you feel a sense of uh, being part of a community. I think that's mm-hmm. more, more uh, important. You feel like you can identify each other, you know, uh, from, uh, you know, like uh, with a, a common language. Yeah and attire and you feel like um, it's an old uh, school boys club that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> so you go to court and you know people um, because similar you know like a group of people are coming to court and you 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 know it's 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 pretty much like that and mm-hmm. my critique of it is that i was severely noticing um women and a lot of women uh, enjoy being lawyers uh, in, in corporate jobs, in, in, in litigation, which is going to courts every day. But I feel that we have it a little bit more, um, you know, like we have it's, it's difficult for us a lot more than it is for men. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, I feel like we have to be a little bit more stronger, a little bit mm-hmm. more masculine. Um, and, and and I'm all for gender fluidity, um, just mm-hmm. saying that. But at the same time, in this context, there's a few masculine traits you have to sort of um, adopt in order to be part of the system. And there's fewer women. Now there's a lot of women, actually, um, that are going into law. I think that it's a great uh, achievement that we've had so far, that women want to opt for this profession but at the same time still uh, comparatively with men mm-hmm. there's still like there's still like an inequality 
where we still have less women going into this professional field and I feel like there's still a lot of changes that needs to be made because it's very patriarchal. And uh, I'm also, um, you know, like uh, a a victim of this patriarchal legal system as well. So it's it's really crazy. (laughs) It's really crazy how we as a nation come out of this um, colonial time. But at the same time, we we have... These, We've these like, cherry really picked entrenched. a few things and kept it with ourselves. You're like, yes, yeah, and it's this continuing. Is <laughs> exactly, this is ours. You're not gonna let it go at all. So, do you think, uh, uh, just just uh, like a random question, do you think suits the American the, the TV the the drama mm-hmm. show, right? Do you think that helped uh, more and more people get into uh, law because a hey, Harvey Specter, okay, Mike Ross. So, d- do you think that that helped? You know what? Don't answer that. Uh, but yeah, uh, who's who's your favorite? Uh, Harvey Specter, Mike Ross. Which which team are you on? Even I wish there was a leading team. lady. I wish Donna, uh, no? his secretary, was Correct. a lawyer. I think oh, there was shit. a lawyer later on. I I don't Just know. I, I so I I did not follow the uh, the the series after I think season two or three. <laughs> Because uh, I, I yeah. loved it. Season one, two was amazing. I absolutely agree. Donna was great. I was like, my God, that lady has a whole sense of power, and she knows yes. how to use that power, which was very strong yeah. for me. And at the same time, even lot yeah. of cases like, uh, was her name Jessica, who was Harvey's boss? I think her name was Jessica. There was a there was a, a black woman who was Correct, uh, Jessica, I, I admired her as well. But as you can see, like it's really interesting, and uh, it's a really uh, Again, like I'm um, being a bit analytical. I hope it's not boring. But in in her shoes, if you if you saw her um, mm-hmm. um, character, mm-hmm. she is slightly uh, manipulative and very strategic, which is something that I feel is probably a little bit of a masculine trait. You know, and she has okay. to be in in this position of um, and in this air of having these uh, i suppose characteristics mm-hmm. and that is something that i feel is uh the masculine ca- uh, the one that you mentioned this art law thing that you mentioned which i think came across uh, in your curriculum in the third year mm-hmm. right of of law school uh, mm-hmm. is that a common subject across law colleges or law schools or was it a specific thing to your uh, school or college it was really specific to us because my mentor, uh, one of the faculty members at law school was all, also quite invested in art mm-hmm. in the sense that he really loved the discourse of art in the, in its um, history, curating and um, political contexts. Mm-hmm. And as well as he's um, a, a renowned um, scholar in international law. Mm-hmm. Um, he studied from uh, the US and he's from there. Um, he's an Indian diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, so he introduced the subject to us and I think it was quite unique at the time. No other law school offered it as far as mm-hmm. I recall. And uh, I think abroad, outside of India, mostly I would say US universities offer it as well, this course, mm-hmm. but also it's not all U.S. universities. I'm I'm referring to U.S. universities in particular because my mentor, the faculty member, I mean, he's right. um, now there and he studied there. So it, it makes sense from his perspective that he introduced the subject to us. And art law and cultural policy is about 
marketing regulation and facilitation of um, art objects, and also as well as thinking about how policies can be shaped about art objects that you know um, are transacted between people. Uh, that is between uh, you know um, like you as an artist who's trying to sell your work, but as well as at the level where governments take on policies to regulate art mm. objects as well uh, within the museums um, mm -hmm. of their own um, as well as I think now that you hear about from antiquity times to present day times how um, art objects of national heritage have been traveling right. uh, between nations as well and now quite a few have been returned um, you know by by former colonies to right. um to the colonized nations and in the still process of returning. So it's it's just a broad spectrum of how art objects are treated. You know, the and moment I, you said I, that, Mekla, I'm so sorry. Yeah. The moment you said that the Indian in me, just just this one, so see, there, there's an Indian which stays inside my head. Okay, it's a very Indian middle-aged uncle who's very stereotyped. And the moment you said that, the uncle's voice just came up, which is, when is the Kohinoor coming back? <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose it's never going to be back. <laughs> oh God! Okay. <laughs> but there's, there's, but there's. I've, I don't know. Um, that's another topic that we can definitely dive into. But I'm not an, uh, you know, expert into it. There's several scholars who have an expertise in this um, mm -hmm. uh, subject field. But I, I, um, I want to add another dimension to this uh, subject uh, in uh, of um, art law and cultural policy from my side. That is that I want to, you know, look into art um, and activism, and and the way that they are interwoven, mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that I would also like to add that we want to come away from um, art objects. Mm -hmm. And more into uh, a different kind of, um, you know, artistic methodologies um, that would be adopted to, as I said before, um, to think about communities and to do something meaningful for communities and a society. So um, this is this is what actually um, uh, took place uh, in a third year of law school, and I'm very grateful for this uh, faculty member. Who introduced it to us and um, as I said or in parallel I was also very keen and interested towards um, arts history um, curating political uh, processes as well so that's something that's like also not taught to us mm -hmm. I mean how you have to go to an art school right um, Bangalore has one as well uh, Shishi School of Art right and design mm -hmm. i hope i took the name correctly but uh, i mean if you're training to be an artist or designer the most likely you'll apply to shrishti school of right. art and design and i think technology that's what they're called right shrishti institute Shishti of school art of... design and technology i just yes. i just looked it up to make sure that the name was correct yeah <laughs> yes so, uh, so you know you mentioned about this one thing and this was in fact my fourth question which i had just noted down a while ago so you used the term artistic methodology uh, methodologies quite a few times right mm -hmm. what do you mean by that as like you know you are an illustrator mm -hmm. and you will have some tools and mechanisms and strategies that you'll approach illustration with mm -hmm. 
and um, it could be something as simple as um, you illustrate on a particular, let's say, um, illustrate a um, 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 what is the what is it called? A tool, like the a, tool, a tablet. A tablet. Yeah. A tablet. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, and I'm sure like there's some strategies in your mind that you may approach your illustrations with. Maybe you get a commission, let's say, mm -hmm. and you you have to soften it uh, accordingly within mm -hmm. the construct of your strategies. Right. And to deliver it in in this very particular way that the that the uh, you know like. Uh, People who have commissioned it um, are happy with it. And so I think that these kind of mechanisms, tools, and strategies that you approach illustration with can be maybe used in a very different way, I suppose, when it comes to thinking about, um, let's say, some marginalized communities that you want to, you know, really, um, let's say, for example, I think Pranita does a good job. Right. Um, in which uh, she on her Instagram often talks about let's say mental health right. issues right. or she talks about some kind of um, not personalized but some kind of issues that are common to all of us let's mm -hmm. say um, in India maybe she's commenting about a class structure mm -hmm. uh, that uh, discriminates a lot of people in India and with that, she will use illustration as a tool to, you know, uh, to, to with certain strategies in mind that how it could appeal to a wider audience mm -hmm. and to be able to, um, you know, uh, make, an, uh, make not just awareness happen, but also at the same time, you know, like it's in the process of an education of people as well, that this is how... Um, you know, um, mental health issues can be right. looked at in one way, or maybe this class structure that we all have, um, you know, uh, that we are all part of. Mm -hmm. uh, this is another way that we, you know, feel about it. I think there's there's several other artists in India who do this, how to say, um, cross-sectional activist work mm -hmm. with their mm -hmm. with their with their um, training as as artists. Right. Um, Makes sense. Makes sense. So artistic yeah. methodologies, if yeah. I get you correctly, would be, let's say, the methods, I'm going to use the same word. So the methods that yeah. an artist uh, uses to get a particular point across, which may lead to some sort of a change, a social change, let's say, in the future. So is, is that what you meant by art, artistic methodologies? Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, that's what I meant. I mean, the end result is not that necessarily it has to be impactful or change, mm -hmm. but the way we look at our community and society and the way we want to make, you know, like some critical um, approach is through these artistic methodologies. So, you know, Tell me this, uh, this is going to be a question which has been coming up uh, over the last few years in my mind. Uh, see, my journey as an artist has been, again, I would say very organic. Okay, I started off again, and again, to be honest, I did not go to an art school. So for me, the only way to learn art was 
I I remember the early days back as a kid where I would draw Mickey Mouse because uh, again like I was watching Disney cartoons all the time so Mickey Mouse or let's say whatever so fan art now now I would term them as fan art right and uh, and then I grew up and I was like hey you know what that that tree that coconut tree outside my window looks really good let me sketch it right and that comes up to a point when now I am starting to think and after all these years my my curve has been really long mm-hmm. I would say <coughs> after all these years that. Uh, you know, I want to make art which says something. So initially, it was just a tree which didn't say anything. It was just like a damn sketch of a tree, right? But now I am slowly moving towards the side where I sometimes want my art to say something. Like I want to make a comment, let's say, right? Or I want to kind of uh, put something out there which would probably make people think slightly otherwise or at least reflect for that matter, right? Now. Should all artists, now according to you, again, uh, it's your personal take on this, should all artists have something to say? Is that what makes them an artist? Or it's okay kind of to do whatever you feel like as an artist. Like, you know what, today I want to sketch a glass. I am going to sketch a glass. Tomorrow I want to paint my laptop. Tomorrow I paint my laptop. So what is your take on that? I'm asking this to you because you have, I, from what I understand, you have a different, slightly different view to it than a random artist out there let's say so what is your take on this <laughs> i have friends who don't want to do anything activist necessarily i don't even want to use the word activist but mm-hmm. don't even want to make a social commentary th- mm-hmm. through their work and that's perfectly fine mm-hmm. um because i suppose they have their own reasons to do that mm-hmm. um but i feel in today's time, we all have like a sense of duty to one another and also a community and overall general society to do something, whether it be climate change, whether it be uh, conservation of oceans, whether it be mass, I mean, human rights violations, it's all happening around us, or even this health crisis, that's something right. that we are all so sucked into it, we can't right. get out of it. And it's, it's, it's really poignant time that we are living in. And not to say that, you know, our history hasn't shown more intense times, but we, 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 I feel personally that we need to have the sense of duty to do something for one another. Mm. And uh, this is where I feel like artists also could, and I'm not saying mm. should, mm. Uh, but could have a responsibility to um, imbibe the sense of duty and to be able to creatively channel their, you know, um, art. Mm-hmm. using these strategies methodologies um which which is which is so different from regular ordinary people the way mm-hmm. you know we look at things um that could be much more useful you know okay. but not necessarily i'm saying it has to lead to an impact but it's mm-hmm. a starting point at least the effort starting point. yeah true true i agree because you know uh again uh over the last couple of years, uh, I have personally stopped doing fan art a lot. Okay, I used to do a lot of fan art where, you know, hey, I like Spider-Man, let me draw Spider-Man in my own way or whatever, right? I have stopped yeah. doing that. I don't know why, but I have, again, nothing against people who do fan art. Please, you guys are doing an amazing work. Everybody kind of starts their artistic do. thing. Uh, come again? I like them too. I like ah, them exactly, too. exactly. Like who doesn't like that? And we pretty much like. I remember filling sketchbooks after sketchbook as a kid, drawing Batman. Or again, like I just copy stuff from comic books, right? But now I am at a stage where I feel, what's, 
the deal with fan art like as in uh, for me mm-hmm. personally right so do every time i let's say open a new canvas on my uh, ipad let's say i ask myself what do i want to draw and in most cases i kind of rule out fan art of the whole thing because i'm like does it really hold a meaning but on the other hand if let's say i'm using a character like spiderman or something to say something else let's say wear a mask okay spiderman wear a mask in today's context right you would realize yeah. that probably does take that whole again for lack of better terms that activism sort of a route that we were talking about over the last 15 minutes i think that's mm-hmm. where you're trying to start a dialogue you're trying to yes. put a comment on something that is happening currently you know that that makes sense and talking to you makla right now has kind of brought me a little bit of uh, uh clarity on this thing that has been in my mind for the last year or so uh thank you for that that this has been helpful the last 15 minutes thank yeah, you i also want to appreciate that the point that you just made and what you asked me earlier about artistic methodologies mm-hmm. see uh, since you identify yourself to be an illustrator mm-hmm. you've actually just simplified something of a complex issue that is covid mm-hmm. and um to think of how you know you can appeal to um your um Audience. audiences right. by something that's so consumable like uh, a, a figure that everyone knows about right. spiderman and to urge them to wear something so simple and in their daily lives to protect themselves from covid you know the mask so i think that's uh, let's say um, a strategy that you're using you're actually mm-hmm. simplifying something so complex in a very uh, you know focused way and a consumable way Right. because everyone's uh, aware of it so right. that's 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 your approach as an illustrator so that's what i mean like it's something really that cool. yeah yeah exactly see now again i've been thinking about this but then again talking to you kind of helped me put words to that thought which otherwise was very scattered in my head so yeah that that's mm-hmm. that's why i thank you for that that it really helped me i didn't even realize this would help me but it did okay now uh, coming back to the whole uh, thing uh, so i know right now you are doing your phd uh, at the intersection mm-hmm. of art and law and i'm going to sound very really fancy while even saying that intersection of art and law at the university of applied arts vienna my god dude you are you are living the life so tell me what is happening current so what are you learning what is your phd about what is intersection of art and law i know we just spoke about it but still uh, what is happening right now with you what is this thing that you are doing um well um a little bit back uh, into my personal you know journey mm-hmm. um is that once i you know graduated i worked as a lawyer i still do and now my legal practice is just you know um within the breadth of um making contracts for artists that's something that i'm really focused on um through this consulting consultancy that i initiated mm-hmm. uh with a few friends of mine um who are from other countries as well and their lawyers um but it's like a very small uh, drop in the vast ocean of the issues that artists face right um but on the other hand um i also had this as i mentioned yearning for um learning art theory history economics and politics and anything related to art uh, mm-hmm. con- of contemporary times of how it's progressing so far mm-hmm. um so i i i did my masters in in that field 
And there I also encountered a couple of mentors who encouraged me to look at um, as I as we've been discussing so far about arts um, relationship mm-hmm. to activism, and that has led me to, you know, start uh, doing my PhD where I want to really focus on mapping uh, certain case studies of artists that are really looking into how language of human rights can be mm-hmm. shaped for future policies. Um, And as we mentioned also about using different kinds of artistic methodologies as well. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm trying to map through this PhD. So that's why I'm here. And I think Vienna as a city gives me this sort of an ecosystem to um, at least be closer to art students and artists and as well as um, exhibitions. Right. The whole idea about like, you know what, illustration, let's talk about that, right? Yeah. yeah, when yeah. Is, yeah. Can you even imagine in your dreams that you'll have an illustrator's work curated in a gallery? It's something that, uh, yeah, I mean, like it's something that's, I, I suppose, uh, within our community, illustrations community, it's unheard of. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that's something that um, another curator, and I think you should be in touch with him. I recommend him. His name is Aditya Mehta. Mm-hmm. Um, from Bombay and he started uh, something called Art and Found. It's a, a startup. It mm-hmm. was um, started in 2016 where if you look at it, the website, it's him trying to make, uh, make art accessible. But what kind of art he means is, you know, doodling, illustrations. Wow. And related, um, yeah, and related I don't know, like... uh, I just did a quick Google search on him. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. You're correct, yeah. He's really good. Democratize art, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's... Exactly. And there's... I suppose what you're trying to arrive at is there's a difference between high art and low art. So there's some kinds of art that are considered to be high, no? And some are low. Absolutely. Like, you can still... You would still imagine that, you know what, somebody... Uh, let's say an illustrator like Quentin Blake, like uh, Quentin Blake, mm-hmm. who's famous for his like these children's book illustrations, right? Uh, would probably be exhibited. And I can still expect like some gallery somewhere in the world exhibiting his work, like prints of his work for that matter. But then the new and upcoming NFT has been a big, uh, uh, I would say, movement in that angle. Where uh, NFT, like I don't know how much you're aware, even I'm not uh, too aware of that. But I know a lot not of people. Not too aware of it too, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, but I, I was interviewing this uh, one person, uh, Amrit Pal. Uh, his podcast is also there. Like as in that episode is there is somewhere in my podcast list. I think must be episode number. 20 something i don't remember but uh, mm-hmm. this guy he's actually doing it now where he started off with nft and now what he's done is he's created i don't even understand these things but a digital art gallery which has got four flows to it and then every week he kind of takes different people's but he's yeah. virtually curating artwork which are to be mm-hmm. sold off as nfts which is again it's too hi-fi for me to be very honest. I'm just like a random person with a pencil and a paper. But then, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of things happening. But you know what? Let, let's come back. Let's come back. So uh, a couple of things which I wanted to understand uh, would be, why is art law important? So again, you've kind of invested a lot of your time into this. Why is art law important? 
for you like not for you but why should art law be taken seriously first of all i think like um in simple ways and we all of us, we all of us in the art community know this happens is that there's lack of transparency in the art field mm-hmm. by that what i mean is uh, specifically within india first of all there is no education that comes uh, you know and there is not a necessity of having an education of art and the other thing is that when you start off as an artist most likely you are starting off without any name or any means to back you up or right. you know uh, of any support of any kind institutionally so there's years spent on crafting on your art and also at the same time you trying to as an artist network with other people as much as possible to 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 make people aware of your art you know hey i'm creating this and mm-hmm. i'd like to sell it or i'd like to you know exhibit it mm-hmm. but then what happens is that when galleries and museums pick up on your work and you as a you know upcoming artists are excited about selling your artwork and exhibiting your artwork or even giving it on loan you seldom think about your rights as an artist uh how do i own continue to own my artwork when i sell it what happens if i sell it and it gets damaged by a collector or or the person who's buying it um how can i still profit off of my artwork when i still own it once it's sold right there are these royalty fees that right. few artists know about and how to negotiate all these rights that i need to have over my art work it's something that artists don't really think about and maybe they don't want to think about it because it comes under the bandwidth of management you know mm-hmm. of uh, their artworks and simply they just want to get rid of their artworks and to be able to be done with it and this, create this more like and a personal more. attack right now Mekla, this is feeling like <laughs> such a personal. Don't mean it, but it's it's what it is. No, but I, you're but, right. Whatever, each and every word that you said, I can verify it personally because I have been through it and I am going through it. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And the other thing is that you know when you when you do as an artist negotiate. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to commissioning of works, I'm sure mm-hmm. you as an illustrator have. organizations and companies coming to you mm-hmm. and saying we want this work to be made can you can you mm-hmm. make it and you say yes of course but you have some sort of um restrictions of your creativity mm-hmm. um you of course have to adhere to their demands but at the same time i'm sure like as an artist you may necessarily not have thought of how much you will be paid for it how many hours you're going to put up how many how much of costs that come into it who insurances the work who owns the work hmm. and all of these things have to be mapped within contracts when right. you enter into contracts with the organization or companies you're working for and um, artists what they usually do is and this is something that is also sometimes uh, can happen to anyone is that you know you you're trying to do the work um which which is much more um i suppose in more you are more in touch with in in the sense of your creative work mm-hmm. but at the same time you just want to you know like 
not think of the other things that come with it yeah. money factors yeah. working hours um ownership um all these factors that are really important to know what your rights are and those can be consolidated in contracts and often those contracts will come from companies or uh, art or uh, sorry or, or organizations that commission your work right that's right right, right? so um, you don't have the negotiation power you don't get to say uh, often how much you want to be paid and all of these are unregulated and all of these are not transparent so you may really not come to know what sort of contract some other artist may have Very or true. it's it's not out in the open so that's how art market uh, and art field peculiarly operate which is what attracts a lot of collectors and investors in this field because um things that we are aware of know of are not in the public eye when it comes to money when it comes to you know these regulations of who owns artworks is it an indian thing only or is it across the other no it's just across the board it's how it is <laughs> it's very unregulated it's in the us it's in the uk it's it's in in south america um there was an artist i was working with and she had you know issues there so it's it's everywhere it's everywhere it doesn't matter where okay, you come from i'll tell you that that part is good to know because okay it's not just us in the whole uh, no. in the boat there are others in the boat as well <laughs> weirdly that's comforting but yeah t- tell me more so i agree mm-hmm. that every time i have had a uh, had to sign a contract so far the contract has been initiated by the client now of course i am more yeah. than happy to uh, sign the contract because I, one is i want the work second the work is too lucrative as in not just in terms of the financial part of it but also where the work will go and that's that's a very big deal for me as an artist and and i do end up signing that yeah about the price part that's the only thing where i think we get to negotiate and probably the timing bit as well like by when do we deliver that sort of a thing but mm-hmm. you're right i actually have given away signed off and given away the rights to my illustration to other entities in this case and i always thought to myself is that the right thing to do but then again i did not have any other option that i knew of so what does an artist do in that case let's talk about that let's talk about the contracts there are a lot of artists whose main income is from True. Um, their work that they sell or are commissioned or exhibited, loaned. Mm-hmm. So that is when um, I think that when they're approached by any organization or institution, they should, from their side, have a contract ready from a lawyer, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they should be able to also wet the contract when it comes from the organization or right. the company that they're working right. with, or even in the context of collectors or buyers. Right. because more often artists don't consider that they can get royalty fees from their works being sold on the second uh, occasion right. so for example as an illustrator if you sell your work on the first occasion to a collector mm-hmm. you you don't get any royalty fees but if the collector decides to sell it once more true true and you are entitled to get these royalty fees so that's what i'm trying to say that these are the things that we know as lawyers um but when it comes to artists i think there's a lack of just general awareness about Maybe. what their rights are and i also want to emphasize this um 
that I was, um, I had held a workshop uh, at the university um, a few months ago, and I was looking into the history of uh, not contracts per se uh, between artists and our art organization, but there were several demands that were made by artists in the 1960s at the MoMA okay. in the US, New York. And it was really interesting because they came up with these 13 um, demands that 30, 11 to 13 demands from their side mm -hmm. that they wanted the museum to change. Because I think at the time the museum had um, maybe like board of directors or art patrons that were quite privileged and well-known and wealthy. And they were influencing what kind of art uh, could be, you know, um, put up in the museum walls. And it was not diverse enough. Artists were not getting paid. And so there were a lot of these structural issues that artists right. were facing at the time. So they came up with these list of uh, demands and mm -hmm. said, these are the things that we'd like uh, for the museums to change. And uh, that was sort of like a movement in itself, you know, and then museum, the museum was forced to make some amendments to the way they function. Right. And this is what uh, I, uh, I think is quite interesting. And you could, you know, take it as an inspiration from this history, mm -hmm. this point of history that artists also should be able to um, have a say uh, in, in the way they want their artworks to be. Right. Um, sold, exhibited, to get paid, um, and also uh, the working conditions of art workers as well. Mm -hmm. And I say art workers as people who are behind the scenes. They're yeah. the ones who are maintaining, looking after artworks or exhibiting, or oh, technicians, so yeah. curators. There's so many people that we discard when, so it's not just artists as well, but right. there are art workers who are also doing their job. Right. You know, in, in, in maintaining artworks and also exhibition spaces. Right. Without them, it's just impossible. So um, they also don't get adequately paid more often in the art world. And as well as they do a lot of uh, hours of work. And for that, it's it's just not adequate payment. So it's it's really unregulated. And um, and this is what the market art market thrives on this, this, this aspect that it's not unregulated and people can do what they want. There's a sense of, uh, you know, autonomy okay. here. Uh, so um, everyone wants their piece of pie, but nobody wants to really deal with uh, these structural problems. So it's not in as specific as you rightly said. It's um, problem. It's a problem uh, within the way the art market, art field, whatever you wish to call it, how it operates. Okay, tell me this then. Um... Let's talk about an average artist in India. Okay, so again, I'm going back to my audience over here. So make I imagine this is somebody who is uh, just starting off as a freelance artist, illustrator, whatever you want to call that. 
and uh, this person has uh, just started receiving let's say commissions or requests and stuff and see in most cases when it's an individual person uh, sending or like asking for a commission there are no contracts involved as such because again it's more of a let's say hey you know what please can you uh, uh, paint mm -hmm. or can you create a portrait of my wife i want to gift it off her, or her birthday or something of that sort so that's one part of the story but let's say i'm talking about when you start getting the bigger fish in the ocean <clears throat> okay and i'm talking about let's say the publishing houses okay i'm talking mm -hmm about let's say these agencies for that matter right mm -hmm. what can the artist do in india and i'm trying to be a little specific here so let's say if i am an artist and i receive a commission and they send a contract they initiate the contract process who can i reach out to to get the contract vetted or verified First of all, I uh, I recommend most artists in India to have their version of contracts, mm -hmm. and how they can go about is is to make, as I mentioned earlier, to make a list of demands, what they would like to um, achieve um, from their artwork that they want to sell, or uh, when they are being commissioned by these um, organizations and companies. Mm -hmm. When you start to make these list of demands, you can start to sort of slowly think of it in the context of a contract, because then you can approach a lawyer, any lawyer specifically, you would want to um, approach a lawyer who specializes in contract law mm -hmm. or uh, most importantly, copyright law. Mm -hmm. Most lawyers, uh, every, every lawyer, will know how to make a contract it's it's not a it's not something of a big deal uh, and um, it's just that i suppose the specialized knowledge that come from you know that as lawyers you know some aspects to keep uh, to to be aware of mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to making a contract or when it comes to copyrights um, so um so you can approach as an artist uh, a lawyer and um, tell the lawyer that these are the demands that you have and you'd like to see it in the contract itself. Mm -hmm. So you will have your own version of a contract ready and you will know these are the rights that you wouldn't want to compromise on. And that's something that you can always go into with the organizations and companies. Most often these organizations and companies will be a little surprised by this right. because they are not used to... Um, having upcoming artists uh, making these sorts of demands it's more like um, you know uh, well-known or established artists who will have these uh, these structures in place and then um, comes negotiation and that's something that you could do on your own um, or you could also involve a lawyer yeah, talk to my lawyer uh, <laughs> it'd be such an awful thing to say yeah um yeah, but at the same time, I think um, it, it's 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 uh, interesting to involve a lawyer because there's a client uh, lawyer privilege as well. So you could, you know, talk to a lawyer in a very confidential way. Mm -hmm. And even in these negotiation proceedings uh, with, with organizations and companies, you can have some sort of, a, you know, like a safety net there if you're not very confident about how you want to really. But it starts from there. It starts from there where you can make a list of demands and then translate it into legalese language or, you know, you know, within a contract. And then you can, these are my rights. And this is something that I don't want to really compromise on, you know. 
And is it something that organizations and companies can also uh, uh, consider? Great, and that great. is when you start to know, and that is when you actually start to know whether you really want to work with these organizations or companies. That is so that, true. That's the working relationship. You that know, it's so a starting true. point to shape it. That is so true. So, and that gives you, and I love the fact that you say that, that gives you an idea and you kind of start getting those red flags right at the beginning that, okay, is this exactly. a client that I can work with, right? Okay, so you spoke yeah. about legalese. I just have a quick question and we'll just, just take it up quickly. Why are contract, like legalese that you say, right? Legal English in this case or legal language. Not right? necessarily. I just used it to... No, oh, that's right. I've heard the legalese term being yeah, yeah. earlier as well mm-hmm. uh, in other contexts. But why, tell me this, why are the sentences so long? Whenever I try to read a contract, Mekla, I have to sit with a pencil and I literally have to follow word to word because sometimes the entire paragraph is one sentence. And trust me, my English comprehension after a point of time just gives up. It says, okay, I'm done. Where did the sentence end? Why are they so complicated sounding? Why can't it just say artist, client, chalo, come karo. You, you do this, you do this, you get this, you get this. Thank you, Tata Bike. Yeah. Why can't it be so simple? Why is it always... It looks so scary. You have to literally keep half a day. I do that, okay? I keep half a day earmarked to just mm-hmm. go through a contract because it's so difficult to consume. Why? Is it by design? Is that what you guys want? How is that working? I think what uh, initially happens is that we have so many factors to consider mm-hmm. that I think uh, by default, the language, the language becomes complex. But uh, there's another thing that I have. Uh, it's just my personal opinion and maybe other lawyers may dis- discard it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I think that our language from law is also quite colonial. And we have to keep in mind that we are using this English language at mm-hmm. the same time. And um, from, from you know, like, I, I suppose there's a history of, of writing the law or laws mm-hmm. a certain mm-hmm. way, right? right? And so I guess we are just imbibing this repetition um, of writing um, long, complex, uh, convoluted, uh, inaccessible <laughs> sentences, and we're just keeping it, thinking that this actually works. But I don't know. Personally, it doesn't work for me. Whenever I approach a contract, uh-huh. I try to make the language as simple as possible, but at the same time, consider all factors that I need to, uh-huh. the parameters that are required to get, uh, you know, these, uh, as I said earlier, demands these rights across. Uh, of the artist and uh, just you know keep it at that uh, keep it clean and keep it um, as accessible so as possible that sounds so refreshing yeah. Mekla I am ready to go down on one knee and ask you will you be my lawyer <laughs> <laughs> I am so ready to do that right now you know what I also feel another reason why people probably why people make these contracts so inaccessible and the word you used is so mm-hmm. perfect inaccessible is because they just yeah. want to confuse the other party they're like Boss, I'll confuse you so, and that's something we learned in engineering. Okay, in engineering college, we learned that if you cannot explain it, confuse them. So that's it. Like yeah. I'll confuse you so much that you will be so exhausted that you will just like, "Haan, bolo kahan pe sign karna hai? Where should I sign?" That's all that the other party will ask, and probably that's the best case scenario. Is there is there a thing? Yeah. Is there a thing? Or am I just like coming up with random? No, not at all. It's it's also a strategy that I suppose lawyers use 
uh, to you know but things don't have to be this convoluted inaccessible in in terms of the legal language there's another scholar that we have uh, in my law school batch who's uh, more critical of this uh, legal language and i think he's he's a good authority on that but um i also have a similar opinion as him that you know it has to be accessible simplified mm-hmm. and also using all the parameters that we need to use to get our points of rights across, across. correct of uh, of the artist so and, and is there an indian thing again or do you also find contracts in other countries where uh, the language is very inaccessible like you said it's really interesting you asked me this because a few months ago i was part of a uh, working group mm-hmm. um exhibition it's basically based uh, in this city called uh, stuttgart mm-hmm. by uh, kunst um wait uh, i'm i'm forgetting the log exact... on this by any chance on your website because these names sound familiar yeah yeah uh, yeah yes yeah. I, I, i saw the blog yeah 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 so it's called kunstlerhaus stuttgart mm-hmm. um so there are these autonomous organizations in germany um that basically are uh, more radical uh when they consider exhibitions of art and artists and uh one of them that i recently worked with was making contracts for artists and art workers um mm-hmm. and this was an exhibition that uh, the artistic director wanted to um exhibit mm-hmm. um and in that uh, there were uh, there was a lawyer that was commissioned to make the contract and she made the contract in german and i only know english language so right. um she made two contracts one was in german and one was in english mm-hmm. and uh, so because her understanding of law is quite a lot in german mm-hmm. and then she translated the the contract oh, in so transliteration the language the language was more reflective of her way of using english language right. i suppose so it's it oh, was really interesting yes. because when i read the contract there were some words here and there that felt to me peculiar because that's something that i'm not used to mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and this is a problem that i've had even in in the uk when i was there the way i would write english is not a native mm-hmm. english language speaker right um form and i was really surprised by that because i having uh, grown up across cities and villages and uh, small towns in india and between north and south of india right. i've been using english my whole life mm-hmm. and i consider myself at this point a native english yeah, speaker <laughs> but i'm not native i'm not considered native in the in the in the uk, UK. i suppose also in the us or australia and this is Wow, this would be tough for you guys. Just another added <laughs> layer of complexity. As if anyway, law was not complex. Let's just add another bunch of masala in this. Okay, okay. So you know, uh, uh, I have a I have a stupid question to ask you, and I, I'll tell you why I think it's stupid because it's a question. It's a burning question which I have, but then uh, it may be the answer to it may be very. Uh, easy or uh, accessible but just that i don't know i have always wondered about this okay and i'm too lazy to read about these things to be very honest hence the podcast so 
the question is so in the case of royalty right so let's say a, a publisher comes to me and says okay hey make the illustrations i say okay i will not only charge you but i also like let's say a percentage of the royalty from the sales that happened from this year to this year i i know that they have a time period in a lot of cases as well now how do you keep track as an illustrator artist whatever how do you keep track of how many copies sold and uh, what is the profit and am i getting the right royalties because i'm sure for a beginner artist this will be a point of question right so how does mm. that work out this is an exercise that i did with my flatmate also because you know she want she's also an illustrator graphic designer and also an artist in various ways like you mm-hmm. um that's because she has a lot of different methodologies she has she... the best flatmate i tell you she has as an, a freelance illustrator she has found the best flatmate cuz now the combination i started off the podcast by saying the combination of art and law can be very powerful and your flat has that that's amazing okay please continue <laughs> um uh this is what happens uh when you think of ownership of artworks that you you really have to start an inventory of your own mm-hmm. to keep a track of um your uh, belongings or ownership of the artwork pricing mm-hmm. who you are commissioning to selling it to and then you start to think of royalty fees eventually um and that's something that's also regulated by law so that's something you don't have to worry about but you have to get it across in your contract at least mm-hmm. that if in case your artwork is sold on the second occasion not the mm-hmm. first second occasion as in like you will have a first mm-hmm. buyer and then the Correct. buyer the and for the resale of artworks right. exactly that is when you can start getting your royalty fees and that's regulated by law so that's something you don't really have to worry about but just be careful of this you know awareness that there's a resale right how but how also do you like see and right now you're talking about a, a very traditional form of art where i'm talking about a canvas or a frame sort of a thing which is a single mm-hmm. unit but what mm. if let's say i'm doing illustrations for a publisher and that's something which i have been doing these days quite a bit which is mm. i'm doing illustrations for a publisher that those illustrations go into a book which is another uh, tangible sort of a, a product which then goes mm-hmm. off to sale and i am expecting a certain cut out of that sale as the let's say as a royalty as the artist mm-hmm. so over there how do i make sure uh, that the client or the the publisher is giving me the right numbers uh, how how do i verify that that would be hard that's where there's lack of transparency right but uh, but in your context i feel like um, i don't know what negotiations took place in the initial period like for example i'm not very clear so you got commissioned mm-hmm. for your work by mm-hmm. this organization and that who does it belong to will be very clear in the contract, contract. or their communication Absolutely. with you if hmm. it's like part of a book and they're like it belongs to us then it the illustrations of yours belong to them correct not you correct, correct. even and though you're the one it because it's towards a book yeah exactly Absolutely. and it's under the their uh, publishing brand or whatever <laughs> and the second thing is that Uh, i mean it's a book i don't know if they treat it as an art object itself in that case if it's sold again mm-hmm. um and i'm saying this in really like traditional ways like something that's an object to be exhibited or something like that a collector's item mm-hmm. then in that case also you won't get any 
you know resale royalty fee because it doesn't belong to you no but i'm not talking about a resale no i'm not talking okay, about okay. a resale i'm talking about mm-hmm. let's say so for example let's say um in music industry so entertainments and music i know that let's say if i am the owner of a certain music track or let's say whatever in that case every time it is let's say played somewhere else i'm supposed to there's apparently something where i'm supposed to get some of uh, the royalty mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. one right so similarly let's yeah, say yeah. i'm making illustrations so uh, okay to, uh, for uh, just to use as an example let's that's talk about let's example. say right so let's let's talk about let's that's say a good example because hmm. it happens quite a lot that in in i think that's how it's how like you know like um, really well known artists um, make sure like their songs exactly. don't uh, get on exactly. youtube exactly. and then like people who are reviewing or reacting to music videos yes music, yes they, they, they have to line. put something else. yeah it's a very thin line so i think that it's really difficult in in the context of this digital world that mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. to regulate where our artworks our creative efforts really end up and who picks it up and um, this is the case where a lot of copyright disputes take place absolutely and to be, yeah. yeah to be honest i'm i'm a bit initially i was really like yes i mean you know we need to do something about it but over the course of years it's it's fatigued me because i'm yeah. like there's there, there's a different way that we can approach it for example if you have some oeuvre that's really defining you as an artist it will keep coming back to you it will keep um in the sense that people will associate this oeuvre just with you and even if it gets sold without your knowledge um or like be it's slapped on you know these your oeuvre on merchandise products at some point people will start to recognize it's yours right you know right. it's so so um i think that that some approach that we can always That's- take that's a practical point as well makla because in mm-hmm. my language i would call it style the style of an illustrator right and once yeah, you yeah. have a very specific style then no matter where yes. it is even if somebody is copying it you'll be like hey you're copying yeah. that style exactly exactly yeah it's so distinct your style and it's associated just with you that even if merchandisers or vendors pick it up and want to steal it and uh, you know sell it it's going to be associated with you so it's in an ongoing see that's the point it's out so the the point that you just mentioned let's say i create a yeah. design and somebody just randomly picks it up puts it on a t-shirt and starts selling it's out already so i think and, and i remember the last time we had a conversation before uh, while preparing for this podcast i think you also mentioned that i think after a point of time for the artist it's probably a good thing speaking about let's say the mental capacity or the mental peace that you let go of a few things is is that would uh, yes. we also to look at it Absolutely I agree. Uh initially I was not of this mm-hmm. opinion but mm-hmm. over the course of years I've understood this is something that has to be done because I think um that if you go into legal disputes it will take a while. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of money involved, there's going to be lawyers involved, there's going to be lengthy uh delay of cases That's that right. are not yeah. going to be treated of priority. This is going to be a very frustrating pro- uh, process. The other is to basically negotiate with the ones who've stolen yeah. your work yeah. um to see yeah. if you can reach a compromise of sorts where they can compensate you. 
Mm. knowing that they've stolen your work and the third is to just absolutely let go and to be able to just in to 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 just invest in your creative process and continue doing that because there's a style that's going to come to you right. <laughs> that I that's, think, that's I think, going to be just you <laughs> yeah and i think at the end of the day for the artist i think it's more about your mindset change that you're looking at where yeah. you're asking about hey you know again that that classic cliche which is it's not about the destination it's about the journey so just make art for the uh, the joy of creating art and not probably uh, well again I, see that that's that's again very debatable and i agree that you also said that initially you were on the other side of the debate but then with time and uh, experience you probably realize no it's probably a better uh, the other side is probably a better side that makes that makes sense like the debate absolutely also, makes sense yeah also i think this is one way to as i mentioned earlier in the podcast you know uh, one way to consider collaborative Mm-hmm. efforts um where you actually think of yourself as an artist by an extension of your work are collaborating with others so you know you approach these people who steal your work not in a way that it's theft but in a way that maybe hey we can do something together mm-hmm. approach it more positively and i know it's hard to do it's mm-hmm. not an easy thing to do at all but mm-hmm. if you extend that sort of courtesy to them maybe there's a positive outcome from it but i think that uh, copyright law um, and you know the legal system kind of juxtaposes people in really adversarial ways so um, you, you don't want to get into that i i i agree it's like at the end of the day you're probably looking at the net gain out of it like not just yeah. in terms of monetary but also your mental peace at the end of the day again i think for each and every person it's it's a very personal thing uh, this mm-hmm. whole debate because again I your agree. priorities is what would really take you in that maybe for some the priority yeah. would be something absolutely different they would be like hey you know what i am taking this to court but again for yeah. others will be like hey you know what janet it's okay they yeah, might as well create yeah. something new tomorrow that yeah absolutely that, that oddly makes sense it should not but it is making sense it should not <laughs> but it is making sense when artists are just young and starting out and creating their work is to spiritually just focus on their creative work but also at the same time think of management of their uh, artwork create an inventory of the kinds of artwork that they are making the date of creation pricing um if they're com- being commissioned for their artwork or they are selling their artwork to also keep a track of these things because that that's something that needs to be done at an early stage it keeps you uh, afloat mm-hmm. and uh, and also in intact in in terms of thinking of it as a business venture and the other is to to really have a list of these demands of what you really want to negotiate with uh, organizations and companies hmm. because these demands are your rights as artists and you need to really get them across whether it's in terms of adequate payment in terms of um working hours in terms of how exactly do you want your artwork to be ex- uh, exhibited in a gallery or a museum space who insures it in case of damages um all these things that you really have to consider is something that you will have to go through um in the context of your demands and then you know slowly convert them with the help of a lawyer um 
you know, like uh, in the process of contract making and then take it to the companies or organizations. And that's that's something that I would advise artists to do. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, um, if there is an inclination towards activism, and it's something that I wanted to mention earlier in the podcast that, you know, I was really invested and affected by what was happening in India um, during uh, the past few months with COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, I noticed that several artists and organizations um, initiated or teamed up with um, NGOs right. that were uh, that were trying to supply oxygen and as well as um, other medical supplies. Mm-hmm. Um to COVID patients to make sure that um, they're getting, you know, all these amenities. Um, and it was the the inis- initiation, the communication, the 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 spread of word awareness and this this uh, this approach to uh, you know activism. It was coming from artists and mm-hmm. art organizations. Um, and like a lot of sales I saw of artworks were going into, uh, you know, the money from the sales were going into pumping into these NGOs that were working so hard um, for COVID patients. And I found this extremely crucial Mm -hmm. point of history, which I don't know goes unwritten, I suppose. Uh, It is something that I also discussed uh, in, you know, in closed spaces, uh, in conferences at universities and across the across you know different countries and i think they really appreciated this it's something that i'm really like um concerned about that a lot of these 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 historic periods Moments. whether ah. it's like so small or big um but when 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 they happen mm. and especially from the art front uh, from india mm. i wish that it gets you know written somewhere documented Recorded. or archived somewhere so that we can mm. go back and feel like yeah there's art that transcends um you know borders and in 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 the sense that it's not just an artwork at the end of the day but also there's a lot of work uh, that goes into it to to help uh, communities and and our society overall. You really think a lot from a very future perspective. Now you you really think a lot from the future perspective because again, I, I again I think you are the first person I spoke to <laughs> again not uh, as part of the podcast but in general who is thinking of it in this way like. Wow, this just opens up a new uh, window for me to look at because, again, even I didn't, would never think of it this way that, hey, you know what, these uh, whatever things that are happening, right? During COVID, I remember uh, 2016, mm-hmm. if I'm not wrong, 2016 when Kerala uh, had these humongous floods and yeah. like, uh, exactly, yeah. right? So there I also remember because I was a part of a few things where we were doing a few things to like just just get something together to help the people out there, right? And I agree that these would be lost with time. These would definitely be lost with time unless somebody records it and this becomes a part of the recorded, documented uh, history maybe in the future. Of course, then it'll be considered as history. But that's a very nice way to look at it, yeah? A very different take on that. 
Yeah, okay. I'm concerned about these things for sure because when I go back and read history, it's usually from school curriculums what we've mm-hmm. you know encountered, and also maybe our personal interests. So we do come across some major historians, but at mm-hmm. the same time, um, in art history and theoretical contexts, I seldom see anything you know recorded like this in from our contemporary times maybe there's just a newspaper article here or there mm-hmm. but you know in instagram has become like this forefront of activism in its own way and to right. you know like make collaborations of these things possible and um yeah i, I hope that someone somewhere <laughs> keeps an eye on yeah, yeah. And, and is interested in this realm of um art activism that's come that comes out from India quite often and we overlook it so it's 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 um, and and all of these are just young artists they're not the ones that are necessarily established absolutely, or, absolutely. you know um, yeah have have a mark or a name of their own so gathering spaces let's say yeah exactly <laughs> right Okay, so you know what, Mekra, this has been a good conversation. Before I close this, I would just like to uh, understand you a little better uh, from just one more angle. So are you also, because I know in your email, you I remember you mentioning, uh, I'm not an artist, like you are not, you don't consider yourself an artist. And then you say, as of now, and there was a wink smiley. And that, uh, again, raised my curiosity. So uh, are you also into making art today as you uh, learn about art history, art methodologies? I'm using this term for the seventh time in the episode today. And uh, are you also into making art? Are you also doing that? Uh, if so, what is your medium? What is your methodology? I'm still considering this. Um, I mean, I don't, as I said, call myself an artist because I'm not making any tangible creative product and if I am, it's just used usually for my own personal, um, how to say, exploration um, to understand myself better. So I'm more text-based person, um, mm-hmm. like words mean a lot to me. Right. Um, so, you know, writing and poetry and I'm also visual. So photography interests me quite a lot. Um and also, um, I don't know uh, where, 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 or what artistic methodology I'll adopt in the near future to really explore myself vis-a-vis also communities and um, uh, as well as the society. There's there's an example I can give you just in a short sense. Uh, there's an there's a workshop at the university I'm likely to organize in the fall this year and. It's with Black women community in Vienna. And I'm thinking of how to, as an Indian woman Mm -hmm. um, who may not have any associations uh, necessarily, maybe in the past, you know, uh, through migration or something, we have associations with Africa or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, as of now, like not necessarily upfront have associations with African art and culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking of how to involve uh, Black women and invite them to an art space at the university and make them feel safe and inclusive and comfortable. And I was looking into their history of how they treat hair Mm -hmm. in African art and culture. And I was thinking of how to 
um, get them to talk about it, invite artists who can talk about it as well, because in African art and culture, hair is an element that they recognize and mm -hmm. deem it to be very important mm. um, as part of relating to each other, as part of cultural nuances within mm -hmm. Africa, because Africa is full of um, different Huge cultures. Huge diversity, and so that itself, uh, for me, in a way, talking um, and thinking and sensing or, uh, about African art and culture, um, and and through different kinds of materials like hair, mm -hmm. which could be treated as an artistic material, um, or masks uh, from uh, African art and culture. You know, like these different things. I'm I'm still. I'm still trying to um, think of what sort of, um, you know, creative methodology I could use to explore me and as well as, um, you know, these communities that I just mentioned about. So it's a long journey for me. <laughs> that, that, that's wonderful. That's very interesting as well. And yeah. uh, as an art lawyer professional, art law professional, uh, I know that you also provide a few services. Am I correct? So, because uh, uh, that's how I got to know about you. Like Pranita mentioned about you. Uh, yes. Right? Yeah. So, uh, can you yeah. just quickly maybe take us through the different services that you provide? So, let's say if somebody listening ever has any need and they may want to reach out to you. So, that's, and of course, your contact details would be there. The website would be there on the show notes. So, uh, what are the kind of services that you provide? At the moment, because I'm, you know, um, part of an ac academic institution i'm focused on um my phd as well as my work at um you know an art organization for ocean conservation mm -hmm. and protection i'm uh, i've limited um time but at the mm -hmm. same time i usually draft contracts for artists mm -hmm. and help them in negotiation processes with organizations and companies mm -hmm. so i'm i'm really um um, you know, invested in, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, invested in the demands of what artists want to bring for themselves on the table okay. um, to yeah. recognize their rights and to be able to translate that into contracts is something that I continue to do um, from the last years to this day. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm happy to have artists or even art workers by extension because um i don't discard them at all they're as much as included um when when you know i have any issue um and you don't understand something whether it being i don't understand the art world how it works i don't understand what demands or rights i should be having through my work um, then you just come to me and I can I can be there <laughs> in a supportive okay. role. So, so are you also saying that, let's say, if an organization, which is, let's say, an organization which commissions artists for work, if they come to you asking for representation, you will say a no, you will say like, nay, 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 I'm only for the artists. Is that a thing? Not at all. I, I work with organizations too, right? Um, so I, I think that it's really important to be representing them too. Mm -hmm. uh, and to let them know that these are what artists ex, uh, ah, will okay. expect. So you you so kind of become the represent. Of course. Uh -huh. So you represent the artist in that conversation as well. So again, I, I think the focus remains on the artist. Yeah, the yeah. focus remains yeah. on the artist. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Absolutely. All right. So Mekla, thank you so much for waking up. Super thank you for having me. Sunday morning. <laughs> 
while uh, I, I, is the thunderstorm over because i couldn't hear it uh, after um neither could i i mean it looks it looks like it's still going to rain but thunderstorms are definitely out of the way okay, for today okay. so i hope you enjoy the rain thank you and thank you for having me no it mm-hmm. definitely was a pleasure i actually learned a lot of things and as i told you earlier as well i got a lot of i could connect a lot of dots in my head which were there they were not troubling me but they were just there i the conversation did help me do that so thank you so much mm-hmm. and uh, yeah this this uh, helps me think I, like this, you just added a new lens to my uh, list and i think i can probably use that to look at things from a slightly different way so thank you so much for that i'm glad as well and thank you for having me and having this enlightening conversation to um to be able to be the listener for once and to you know map it with me you know the, this conversation because i think that i would give you so much an immense credit to have this podcast out of your sheer will but also as well as to um draw these connections and networks and to be able to have these conversations out there for people to understand for themselves right. what's what's uh, the way the ways in which they can think with us true, true. that's <laughs> that's absolutely true and and i it just i just hope people end up let's say at least learning a few new things or thinking maybe in a different way mm-hmm. uh, through these conversations i think that's the only thing but yeah thank you so much for your time ekra this was an absolute thank you pleasure. as well thank you thank mm-hmm. you so much thank you all right so that was my time with mekla i really hope you found this conversation insightful uh, a lot of uh, i would say food for thought for me at the end of the conversation for sure and uh, yes as always uh, her contact details would be uh, in the show notes her website would be there so if you want check it out if you want to reach out to her feel free to do that i'm pretty sure she'll uh, really appreciate it and uh, yeah tell your friends about this show and uh, yep i think i'll see you again next time i think i'm pretty sure i'll see you next week and uh, hopefully with another guest and thank you so much for listening yeah.